women are shocked when I talk about options. They just kind of look at me and they go, what do you mean? I go, well, we have a spectrum of options. We can go very, very holistic. And we're talking like dietary vitamins. I mean, we can go all the way to the operating room. Where are we going to fall? Here's all these options. And they go, I don't know. Are you, can you just tell me what to do? And I said, no, I can't. Cause it's not my body. Yeah. I said, it's your body. I'm giving you the medical side, the options and whatever this illness or disease or ailment is. But at the end of the day, you get to choose. I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Chick, a Soulfire production. All right. Hello, my loves. Bryn here today, and I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Heather Bartos to today's show. Heather is a board-certified OBGYN, author, speaker, mom, and everyday gal. And she is also a leading voice in the field of women's health, particularly women's sexual health. She's been featured in publications like Glamour and the Huffington Post to Reader's Digest, Women's Health, and even ABC News. So amazing. And she also has a spicy podcast about sex, self-love, and sisterhood called The Me Spot. So I would love to welcome Dr. Heather to today's show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. And I'm going to just take us immediately into the journey of, I was doing a little research as one does before we get started, looking on your website and you had so much about your journey to becoming an OBGYN that I loved because I know myself, and I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption that many of our vulva owning listeners have gone through the ringer when it comes to the traditional Western medicine and healthcare system. And when I was reading about your journey, there was a lot there as to how you became an OBGYN. And it wasn't that you were born this way and that you decided you were going to be this from the time you were five. So let's start (laughs) (laughs) with giving the listeners a background into your journey into becoming a doctor and then why you started to take the route that you did. Yeah, I am. You're right. I did not. When I was five, I wanted to be a figure skater. That's what I wanted. (laughs) I had like a Dorothy Hamill haircut and I thought I was really hot shit. That did not go out. I was not a good ice skater at all. In fact, I failed my one and only test in it. And I said, I'm done with this. I like to say that I'm a late bloomer when it comes to medicine. And I think because I went to medical school, I was the oldest woman in my class. I was 28. Now, there are plenty of men that were 40, 50, et cetera, but I was the oldest woman in there at 28. And prior to that, I had worked in public relations and advertising. I'd done all kinds of really cool stuff. I had, you know, I chauffeured Bobcat Goldthwait around in a car right after he burned a chair on the Jay Leno show. I'd done a lot of kind of really cool things, but it just didn't really sit with my heart that this is what I wanted. And I thought if I, could pick anything for the rest of my life, what would I want to do? And as you know, the universe does for you, it says, oh, is that what you want? Let us take you there. And I got fired from my job because I shot my boss in the nuts with a paintball pellet gun. It was an honest mistake, but it was hot pink and he was a good old boy. And I soon found myself out of work. And so I, I kind of did like, I call it the walk of shame back to Texas where I was from. And I thought, oh God, this is it. And then my boyfriend of seven years dumped me and I was just in this kind of hollow place. And I got a new job working in the Texas Medical Center. And for those who, you know, think that Texas, everything is bigger in Texas. This is true. 
And the Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. And so there were tons of people to go work with. And at the time I worked in children's advocacy with Texas Children's Hospital, I found I really, really liked doing that. And then I started to get a taste of, I had to go interview some other doctors and I got to work with DeBakey and Dead and Cooley and some celebs in the doctor world. And I thought, you know, I might like to do this. This sounds like this sounds like this could be fun. I'm a doer by nature. I like to do things. And so like my dad says, you decided to wake up one day and go to medical school. And I'm like, mm. it was more complicated than that. Yes. I just kind of quit my job at 28 and went to medical school. And I had kind of been raised in a very alternative family in that, you know, gosh, my mom made for my 16th birthday, this gluten-free fructose free. I mean, it was kind of some kind of crazy cake that we couldn't cut. And so I had raised them, what I call it in a hippie household where we were very comfortable with alternative foods and alternative methods of medical care. And when I got to medical school, that wasn't ever discussed. All the questions I had about medicine, they weren't discussed. We didn't talk about sex and sexuality. We didn't talk about all the emotions and the feelings behind different diseases. And so I thought, well, this is it. I'm going to become a doctor. And I tried to paper cut myself out like a doctor. And I thought, I'll just do this. But, you know, you can't keep, <laughs> you can't keep your true nature gone for very long. And when I went into the military, because I joined the military to pay for medical school, because that was my ticket in, the military actually was very open about these things. And I found myself kind of letting my, I'll say I was letting my freak flag fly a little bit. And I got out and joined corporate medicine, which by the way, is the antithesis of letting your freak flag fly. And I wanted to spend time with people. I loved women's stories. It's why I went into women's health. I wanted to hear about not just my period suck, or I, I can't have an orgasm or I have a UTI. What's going on behind all of that? And I couldn't do it. And they would ding me. They would say, you're not seeing enough people. And so I was supposed to see like 40 people a day in these five minute increments. I didn't even remember people's names. And so I got really, really sick. I got pneumonia. No one could figure out why. I mean, like hospitalized for a week, hospitalized. This is before COVID. So this was a really big deal. But then we just didn't do that. And I thought, this is my body telling me I am not living up to what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I started, maybe it was hallucinations, maybe it was the fever. I don't know. I started thinking, what if I could create a place where I can do what I really want to do? It was unheard of really for most doctors to go out by themselves and kind of start fresh. But I had a few people that were really good about believing in me about it. And so we opened up this first clinic and, and we had yoga, meditation, we did Reiki. We did everything. There was lab, there was aesthetics. There was everything a woman could want in one spot. And it was truly like a feeling to finally be able to say, oh, this is what we're missing. The whole mind body experience. And it's, it sounds cliche, but it's true. And so now here we are eight years later and we've moved over to another side of town and I'm actually bringing in a light healer an energy worker. And it's just amazing to see I've, the whole goal is just let it go where it's going to take you and it's always going to lead you right. Right. And so now here we are. And now, yes, now I have a podcast and all this other stuff. And it's just, it's very satisfying and fulfilling. Mm, so beautiful. And have you heard of this concept called the Saturn return? I have. It sounds like 
you hit 28, you went into your Saturn return. And for those of our listeners who don't know, it's an astrological event that happens around 28, 29, that gives you what we call this course correction. And it can be really painful. It can be really tumultuous. And if you surrender to it and follow your heart, it can really point you in the direction that you were always meant to go. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened to you. And it's, yeah, I I truly believe that too. And I probably had several course corrections in my life, but this was the big one. And I really do think that now I can make a bigger impact on women than just treating a UTI all day. Totally. You know, when you said the statistic of 40 women a day, five minutes a pop, my jaw dropped. Not because, you know, I know that that's true. And yet it's still staggering to hear because I I felt it through my own experiences. And I was just talking with a girlfriend last weekend and she is in the process of testing her fertility. She's in her early thirties and she wants to start learning about her body and before she goes to have babies. And I guess there was a marker that was like through the roof that wasn't supposed to be through the roof. And she had this follow-up scheduled with her OBGYN. And she basically said, yeah, your number's here. It's about, you know, 10 times the normal number, any questions? And like, it was, the appointment was over and essentially it was on to the next. And she said, my jaw dropped. I was stunned. She's like, I couldn't understand that this was literally my appointment and that there was no level of care beyond that. Yeah. That's one doctor, of course, not everyone is like that, but unfortunately it's common. And well, and, and it's, we're set up for failure. I mean, I always say, you know, that as doctors, we're not taught force the human connection. I love human connection. Like I live for it, but it's also insurance companies. You know, we have to get through so much to be able to pay overhead and afford this. And so, and I think some doctors are so left brain. They just don't think about what someone's feeling at the moment. They think about, here's the number. I don't know what to tell you next. I don't know how to make this sound better. And so they just just move on because they're almost kind of embarrassed or shamed that they can't then help someone. And it's the whole system is kind of kerflunkly. But of course, that's a soapbox for another day. Yeah, right. The whole podcast in itself. (laughs) I'm curious, what have you noticed in these eight years of treating women holistically and bringing in their emotions and energy work and treating their symptoms, but also getting to the root cause and incorporating all parts of their life. Maybe you could paint a picture, share a couple of stories of what you've seen. Yeah. I think that one thing that we miss is kind of the why, and I borrow the why I call it the five why model. It's actually, I didn't make that up. It actually came from the business world. So Toyota actually created this five why model about why things weren't working And I love kind of applying kind of like, I'll say new business techniques to healthcare because I think it works really well, not because healthcare is a business, but because they found really good ways to kind of ascertain what's going on. And so if I have someone come in and says, well, I didn't pick up my prescription. And so the first question will be like, well, why was that? Well, I didn't have a ride. Okay, well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. And let's find out what the root cause is. The root cause is really, she's maybe afraid of the disease and doesn't fully understand it. And there are so many women, and I'll say women because that's primarily what I treat, that we just haven't gotten good training on how to be vocal advocates for ourselves, to have agency. And so we kind of live our lives either saying, okay, if that's what you say, fine. Or we go the other way and I'll have women bringing notebooks, like five inch notebooks of every cough and cold they've ever had. And that's all through miseducation. You've just never been educated on how to care for ourselves. 
And so the biggest thing I think is, is one, I get women to try to beat their own agent for healthcare. And then also to get to the root cause. Is there usually, usually an emotional component to all of this? And there's usually a mindset switch that has to happen to go, oh, I'm not a victim in this. This is actually, I'm in control of this, whatever it is, whether it's diabetes or polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, whatever it is, I actually am in control and that I'm going to work with this illness to kind of become my best me. Mm, It's so true. I'm sitting here thinking of that shift in me. It was I grew up with a family of doctors and white coats, and I'm so grateful for that. And the way that I was raised was whatever the doctor tells you is, is true and you believe it and you take it and you move forward and you don't ask questions. And this is somebody who knows your body better than you do. And that eventually led me to coming up against a couple of dead ends where I was given diagnoses. At one point I was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis and the urologist said, you'll have this forever. There's no way to fix it. And you can take some medication to help essentially deal with the symptoms, but like, this is your path now. And I remember I got angry. I was so mad at him. I remember thinking, how dare you just tell me that this is the way that it is. You don't know me. You've been in this room with me for five minutes gave me a five minute internal exam. And then we're going to just go on that. This is my diagnosis. There was no conversation about the stressors in my life and what other factors could be contributing. Mm -hmm. And spoiler alert, I didn't have interstitial cystitis, or maybe I had a flare that was caused from something else. And it took me about a year and a half of me taking ownership and responsibility for my life and my emotions and my desires. And over time, I've been completely pain-free for, you know, eight years now. And So in hearing that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what that point was for me. And it was, it was learning to work with my body and understand that the person I'm hiring doesn't know my body better than me. They have a lot of amazing education that they can support me in and point me in the right direction and help go through this process faster and with more ease. And I still get to check in and go, what's best for me? Women are shocked when I talk about options. They just kind of look at me and they go, what do you mean? I go, well, we have all these options. We have a spectrum of options. We can go very, very holistic. And we're talking like dietary vitamins. I mean, we can go all the way to the operating room. We, where, where, where are we going to fall? Here's all these options. And they go, I don't, I don't know. Are you, can you just tell me what to do? And I said, no, I can't. Cause it's not my body. Yeah. I said, it's your body. I'm giving you the medical side, the, the options and where I think this, whatever this illness or disease or ailment is. But at the end of the day, you get to choose. Mm. And so some women, it freaks out so much they never come back. They're like, uh, I don't, you don't need to be told what to do. I will advise you what I might do if it was me, but I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I love it. We as women, we're like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. And it's, that's the beginning of, if they allow it to be this unraveling and opening to their intuition and letting their bodies be their guide, because they really won't lead you astray. I really believe that. Um, oh, absolutely. It's a learning. So yes. And I I think about this all the time too, with my future daughter of, I was not presented at an option when I was 16 years old, having horrific periods. Nobody talked to me about nutrition. Nobody talked to me about stress. Nobody talked to me about maybe food or nutrient deficiencies or food imbalances. And so I look back on that and think, okay, I was given hormonal birth control that masked my symptoms for 10 years. I got off the pill and my periods came back with a vengeance. And so I think all the time of, okay, of course,
course I'll present to her the options of there's a pill that is available to you that will prevent pregnancy. And then there's also these other amazing things we can do with your body that if you do have painful periods, we could start here and let her make a guided, educated decision so that again, she's learning to be her own advocate from a young age. I love that. And I love working with my, my teenage girls that come in because it's a chance, teenage women, I should say. I have a chance to kind of start to show them what this is at the beginning. And I really try not to be on them too much when they kind of look over their shoulder at mom. And I'm like, no, 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 you get to make this decision. Mm. And they're like, and then sometimes mom will be like, oh, oh no, we're not going to do that. And I'm like, oh, it's another yeah. generational gap gone yeah. bad. But, yeah. but a lot of times I'll say, what sounds good to you? And, and I'm just starting that process of this is your body and you get to decide. And a lot of times they will choose the birth control pills because they really also want to have sex with their boyfriend. They don't want to tell their mom that, you know, totally. that's fine. That's yeah. fine. But I, let's be honest about why we want it and what we're going to do with it. Yeah. And it's, I love starting with, I have a 12 year old daughter and I'm already starting with her. I'm like, everything that you know, like if your period cramps, magnesium, if yep. this is done, this, then this, then this, you know, before we ever get to my husband's up, he's a old school medicated pill pop. Let's go, go take some of this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't need to do that. Let's try heat. Let's try this. Let's get out on the earth. Let's try some water mm. and let's see if this will help at first. So I have to even now elbow him out of the room sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that you're getting to see that in your practice, see it in your home. And I love too, that the listeners who do have young women in their lives can start to have these conversations with them. Now, tell me, we're going to shift gears a little bit because when I was reading through some topics that you love to riff on, there was one that really caught my attention and it was this concept of self-care being bullshit and it <laughs> made me laugh. And I'm like, yeah, let's go here. Let's go to the place where everyone's so into self-care and self-care this and self-care that. And I know that it goes beyond just you saying it's bullshit. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you feel that way. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of flack for saying that self-care <laughs> is bullshit because everyone's talking about self-care. But I think also we've been, again, taught kind of wrongly on what self-care truly is. I think a lot of us are told, oh, it's a bubble bath. It's a mani-pedi. It's a big, 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 big glass of wine. I'm, I'm doing self-care. I'm watching 17 episodes of Bridgerton, you know, in one sitting. That's self-care. And while that's fine, don't... Don't get me wrong. I binge watched five episodes of Bertrand the other night, waiting for a baby to deliver at four in the morning. I also understand what it is. It's a moment, it's a moment of escapism. It's a moment that I can kind of say, I just want to tune out of the rest of the world. That's not technically self-care. And what I tell women is, is you are a plant. You are a beautiful plant. And when I buy a plant from the store, that plant comes with its own self-care instructions. It'll say, you need this much water, indirect sunlight, you'll need fertilizer every three months, you need all these things, but two plants do not have the exact same self-care instructions. They have very different ones. And while I might be a cactus and you're a, a philodendron or something, or an ivy, like I say, or pothos back there in the back of your room there is they require different things to be nourished and to grow. And so when we look on Facebook, we look on Instagram and we see, oh, so Susie down the street is doing this for her. That's self-care. That's not necessarily self-care for us. We have to decide what our version of self-love is. And that's the phrase I kind of prefer to use is what is loving to you? If your child or your loved one or your partner had a bad day, what would you say to do? Would you say, oh, go drink a six pack and you know watch WWE all night or whatever they might do? 
that's just escapism. That's you had to show you gay. Let's go escape for a little while. But that's not making you more fulfilled, more satiated, a better person. It's just escapism. And that's fine, but let's call it what it is. It's not self-care. It's just a moment that you want to clue out for a little bit. So true. You know, I think about, I'll ask myself, like, what is the most loving thing I could do for myself in this moment? And sometimes that means looking at a budget, you know, sitting down with my finances and having a money date. Sometimes that means having a really tough conversation with somebody when I don't want to. Sometimes that means tending to my emotions and like putting myself in adult timeout and making sure that I actually feel my rage so that I don't go and project it out on others. That's self-care and self-love. That's a version of it for me. Exactly. Not, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Not this like pour a thick glass of wine and turn on Netflix and pretend that the world is stopping for a moment. Yeah, and it's really easy because that's what we've kind of been led to believe. We've kind of been fed the Kool-Aid, so to speak, on what this is. And, and I do this with my kids. I'm like, that is not self-care. I mean, for me, self-care is, is whenever I'm having a really crazy day or I need a moment, I like to go put my feet in bare grass and just like feel the earth because I'm always running and going and going and going. And I like to just stop and put my feet on the grass. And that to me is like, that's like just five minutes of self. I'm actually at that moment, loving myself. Sunshine. And we all love sunshine. Although I love a great rainy Sunday when I can maybe take a little like 20 minute nap. Like those are little things that as a plant, right? We're not too far off from plants that I decide are my kind of self-care instructions. But like you said, yours are maybe totally different because we're different people. Mm -hmm. There's this quote that I saw and I I've mentioned it, I think even on another podcast, because it was so impactful for me. It was something around like, don't let this tainted self-love trend have you being 50 and alone because you walked away from everything that didn't serve you instead of actually learning what conflict resolution looks like. And Absolutely. It really reminds me of what you're talking about here of how self-love is not just leaving and escaping and saying like, this person doesn't serve me and I'm just going to dip out. It's taking a look at what could be the most loving thing in that moment. So thank you for having a different spin on that. I really appreciate that. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with a Manny Petty. Let me just say that yeah. right now. We all love one, but it's not really caring for myself. It's just, you know, it's just a nicety, it's a luxury. Were you always this in tune with what self-love looked like? Or was there a process oh. in which you had to learn that for yourself? Yeah, I definitely, you know, I think when I kind of, I had kids late in life and I think when I kind of got to the point where I had a few minutes by myself, how did I want to spend them? And I would watch other women like in the neighborhood and they would say, well, let's all go out for drinks. Let's do this. And I was thinking that just sounds exhausting. And it doesn't seem like that's really going to make me feel any better. And I tried it a couple of times. But then I was like, no, you know what, really? I'm kind of an introvert. I know that's hard to believe I'm an introvert by nature. I need like 20 minutes by myself to calm my mind down and to kind of get back to recharge that way. And so I think it was a slow process. I probably didn't say self-care was bullshit back then, but over the years, I've gotten a lot more direct and that's exactly what I think about it now. So it's definitely something that everyone has to kind of learn for themselves. And I don't know if someone had told me a long time ago, I would have been like, oh yeah, no, this is totally self-care. But over the years, I know what works for me and it's different than what works for someone else. And it sounds like people can just check against, am I escaping or am I actually doing something to fill my cup up? 
And exactly. if it's filling your cup up, then great. That's a great act of self-love or self-care. Yeah. Awesome. Looking to spice up your toy box? Yoni Pleasure Palace is still at the very top of my list for high quality sexual and sensual products. Every time I go to their website, I am more and more impressed by their perfectly curated items. My husband, Jordan, and I recently received a brand new waterproof blanket that is in my favorite color, violet purple. We also received a stainless steel and rose quartz anal plug that is so sleek and sexy. Jordan loves when we use this. My personal favorite lube for self-pleasure is Yoni Elixir. It smells so light and delicious and is made with rose hip seed and jojoba oil. Literally every item I have from YPP becomes a favorite. I've given a cervix serpent to a friend for her birthday, Yoni Elixir as mother's blessings gifts for my soon-to-be mama friends to massage their vulvas and vaginal walls in preparation for birth and to encourage them to invite more pleasure into that process. I've traveled all over the world with my YPP waterproof blankets, and I consistently reach for my gorgeous glass and crystal toys for self-pleasure practices. It is an absolute dream to be working with a brand I was already so head over heels in love with. Should you wish to add Yoni Pleasure Palace to your personal collection or to help a significant other add to their collection, check out the links in the show notes to receive special discounts on your items. Let's shift the combo to sex because we love to talk about sex on this show. We love to talk about sex. <laughs> yeah. What would you say are some key components for our listeners? We have a predominantly female audience, but we do have some male listeners, but I'll let you just take this in whatever direction feels good for you. What are some ways that people can start to have a better sex life? What are some things they can do and what would advice would you give to them? Oh gosh. Do we have 24 hours to discuss all of it? Keep it running all night long. Oh sister. I think one of the first things I tell women is, is, you know, again, you've been your body is created for pleasure as a woman, as a man too, but I'm, we're going to go with the 90% of everyone that's listening. The clitoris is the only organ that's ever been created solely for pleasure. That's it. That's its only job. It has no other purpose. As women, we actually have kind of been beaten down on our sex drive. Women biologically are supposed to have higher sex drives because we're supposed to populate the planet, right? So we need to have a high sex drive to go have sex, have children, and then populate the rest of the planet. But over the years, back when women were a long time ago, when we were kind of, gosh, chieftains and goddesses and all these kind of things, we were very empowered. And then as kind of the patriarchy grew, not to male bash, not male bashing, but as the patriarchy kind of grew, women were supposed to be chaste and pure and to repress anything. They were just there for, to have a baby and to carry on the family line. And we still are seeing effects of that kind of ideology still today. My mother was always, she always talked about that she was a virgin when she got married and, you know, you should save yourself for marriage. And this is what you do. This is what good girls do, right? There was a good girls and then there was a not nice girls or a bad girls. And we saw it in movies, right? I remember watching Greece and, you know, and Sandy was good and pure and she got, and then, you know, Rizzo was not. And so there's this very, the kind of media has portrayed this kind of area where we're not supposed to feel pleasure. And that's not at all what's true. So I always start with women on what pleasures them specifically. And much like self-care, self-love, it's different. Some people find that when they get into this, 
they have to release a lot of feelings of shame and regret. And those are all things that live within us because of something that's happened, right? So if like your mother caught you or your father, whoever was caught you touching yourself, which is very normal, biologically, very normal as a five-year-old or six-year-old. And they said, stop that. That's dirty. Well, at that level, you're still creating your belief system. So you now believe that your private parts are dirty and that can stick with you. And you don't even know it because now you're an adult and you're like, why do I not like to masturbate? Well, we have to get deep down in there and find out that you were told a long time ago that sex is dirty or touching yourself is dirty. So there's a lot of kind of traumas that we kind of have to release around sex and it's doable, but it's tough. It's tough to unpack all that shit. And you know where I'm going with this. You usually have to kind of, kind of I always say kind of unpack the whole suitcase, like in front of you. So there's going to be past relationship issues that somehow got you. Maybe you dated a narcissist and he told you that you were whatever. Maybe, you know, your uncle Joe had you sit on his lap and you felt weird about it when you were six, all these little different things. And we unpack the suitcase and we look at them all. We can examine them all. Then we can start to release these things. Now I've had women that come in for a sex health consult and I talk about this. And again, I, I never see them again. They just want the magic pill. And I wish there was a magic pill for sex. I do. I would be the first in line for it, but there's not. Sex, like exercise, like other things is a vital sign for our life, but it's also sometimes work. We sometimes have to practice it and do it. And then there's also the whole getting older thing. We kind of assume that sex is for the young, the beautiful, the Kardashians, you know, whoever it is. And we assume that as we get older, that sex will go away because that's kind of what we've been led to leave like our grandmothers, right? And this, oh, well, I'm old. We don't do that anymore. So I always invite women to find women older than them in whatever decade. And this is actually kind of a fun game. I like to play this actually with friends. If I do go out for a drink is what women do we find sexy in every decade of life? And I don't, I don't start super young, but we'll start with forties and we'll say, okay, who do we think is really sexy? And we might say, someone might throw out, oh, I think Amy Schumer is really sexy. And we're like, oh, why? And she's like, I just think she's hilarious. And she says what she's on, on her mind. And we're like, that is sexy. Okay. We'll keep going up the chain. And you may find, you know, Jane Fonda up in her eighties. Well, she decided to go gray. She is who she is. She said, this is what I want to be. You know, we can find someone almost in every generation that is a role model for how we want to live out our sexiness, which is, of course, all about confidence and, and kind of an inner beauty, inner sexiness. And when we do that, all of a sudden getting old isn't scary anymore because there's someone above you that is still rocking it. And that's what we choose to be. And when you start to kind of, you create like almost like an avatar, right? An avatar of, well, I like this, like a Amy Schumer. Oh, she's hilarious. So you find that sexy. So you want to embody that yourself. You may find that Angela Lansbury, who is 93 years old and was in Mary Poppins Return, still working full-time job. And you're like, I love her grit. She's still working. We can start to find these women and we can kind of extract out what makes them so appealing to you. And then you can start to embody that into what you want to be. So if it's grit and humor and brilliance, like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, she was, you know, great for women's rights. What is it that you find sexy about these women? And the more you find sexy in other women, the more you start to find sexy about yourself, because you know what you give out, you start to get back. Mm -hmm. And so I always make an effort to try to compliment women on something because 
there's enough love and everything to go around. We don't have to worry about, I, I don't have to worry about fighting for, for partners and jealousy and all that because we don't need to. And so it's really fine to see how women's kind of mindset changes about age and sexiness and what they want as they start to look at role models, because we've been taught, I thought, you know, I thought that, you know, when you were 20, that was it. And it was just downhill, just gets different, but it can get better actually a lot better. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Sex is so much better for me now in my thirties and it was in my twenties than it was in my teens. And I know that trajectory will just continue. Like I refuse to think that I went downhill at 20. There's absolutely no way. <laughs> no. Yeah. And so much of us, what we taught, you know, we think is that's what, and again, this is what the media has really focused on is, you know, when they show a sexy model, they don't show Helen Mirren, who's 79. They show some, you know, hot Sydney Crawford. Remember that Pepsi commercial? And she's letting with the short shirt and all this. And I was like, well, that's what's sexy. I guess I just don't have that. So I'm screwed, but we're not. You can find someone sexy in, in any decade of life, in any gender, in any gender orientation, in anything. I love having the role models. And I do that a lot with clients when we talk about archetypes. So if we're talking about the queen, for example, and I'm helping women to embody more confidence, I might say to them, like you in this moment may not have that accessible to you, but who's somebody that you can see, whether it's a fictional character, someone on TV that just embodies that queenly confidence. And, you know, they'll pick someone like Daenerys from game of Thrones. And I'm like, okay, great. So can you access her for even just a moment, put her energy on so that you can start to actually feel what it's like to be in that queenly energy in your body. And you can do that same thing with the sacred slut, the seductress, the sexual energy that you want to run through your body. Pick a couple of different women that you've admired and try them on. Dance around your living room. See what it feels like to be whoever, Jennifer Lopez or Amy Schumer or Helen Mirren, like whatever that energy is that you want to embody. It's so possible. So I love that you speak of role models to look to. Yeah, I really was. I mean, I turned 50 last year and it was huge for me because again, my mother kind of gave it all up, you know, around 45 because she had older and she just, I just saw that. And I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Please. I don't want to do that. And I actually feel way sexier now AFD, and with some extra pounds on than I had when I was certainly 40 or 30. And I feel better now about myself than I ever did. So it does get better. It does get way better, Yes, but it has to do with how we keep working on our mindset to keep it good. It's we have yeah. to exercise that mindset component. Confidence, sex appeal, it's an inside job. I say that over and over. It has nothing to do with how you look. The most beautiful, magnetic, confident woman in the room is usually the one that has the most sex appeal, the most magnetism, the most radiance. And it has nothing to do with what she's wearing or even how she's talking. It's more of just that energy that's within her that you can feel. And I've talked to men about this, that, time and time again, they'll say they'll have had partners where they're like, she was beautiful, a supermodel, like gorgeous. But when she didn't feel good about herself, that was when they felt the least attracted to them versus yeah. when they were just so in love with themselves. That's when that sex appeal and that confidence really started to come through. Yeah. So. And that's, that's really what I did. What I had to go to when I was fixing my sexless marriage, because we went through a period of time where we didn't have sex for like two years. And mm -hmm. It wasn't on my side. I was like, Hey, what's up? And I constantly got rebuffed and rebuffed. And, and then of course, you know how this kind of degradates into, well, 
he must be cheating on me or he must be gay or he must be something. There's something wrong. Oh, no, it must be me. I must be 40 and fat or maybe I suck at bed now. Maybe I just haven't gotten very good and he's over it. And the only way I could fix that, because I did not want to get a divorce. I didn't want to leave him because we had young kids together. and We owned a business together was I can only fix me. So I can only fix what I feel like. And I stopped doing the, you know, get ready to go out. I'm like, how do I look? And he'd be like, okay, great, fine. And I was like, I was heartbroken. I was like, I don't need to fucking ask him how I look. I look hot. And so I stopped saying anything. And then the compliments started coming because I was changing my energy to kind of project out. And I didn't need him or anyone else to make me feel sexy. I could feel Mm. sexy all on my own. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, two years is a long time to go without sex. And I love that you're normalizing that you didn't just pack your bags and leave. You asked, what am I responsible for? And then you worked on that. And in some cases, for some people, that may be enough. In some, that may not move the needle. And then there's a conversation about what that looks like. But I love that by you turning the energy inward, you saw a massive shift in your relationship. That's powerful. Yeah. Two years is a very long time. Let me just say. Very, (laughs) very long time. And, you know, there was, there was, he had some issues, shame and regret from childhood that we had to work through. And, and I, you know, I guess as couples, we aren't talked on how to have these kind of vulnerable, painful conversations. It's just not, unless you go to someone that kind of helps you through that, you know, I didn't know how to say that to him. So I think I actually, I think I actually slut shamed him. It was kind of inadvertent, but I was mad. I was mad and angry and hurt. And so that's what I used. And that did not help anything, by the way, just don't recommend that to any viewer or listener. Do not sex shame your partner. That did not work out well, but now we're back together. Everything's great. And our sex life is exactly where it should be. Beautiful. Yeah. There's hope. And it normalizes too, that things take time to shift. You know, I get clients that come to me and they want an overnight immediate response. And it's like, you know, if these patterns are deeply rooted from childhood, and they took you 10, 20, 30, 40 years to make, we need some time and some compassion and grace in that process. Yeah. yeah. And I tell people that, you know, we say the same thing with other things like weight loss. You don't lose 20 pounds that you packed on overnight. Right. You know, it takes some time. You don't get a great, you know, muscle body, but overnight it takes some time and it takes work. And I think a lot of us just want the quick fix, the magic pill, the, you know, but I want this tomorrow. I can't promise that you can't promise that, you know, tomorrow, everything's going to be better. It'll be better, but it might not be better enough. Every day I think does get better that you work on it, but it doesn't sleep. Like you said, move the needle all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a client, for example, we've been working together. This will be our fifth call. So a month and a week. And she came to me with challenges in their intimacy. They weren't having sex not feeling good about herself, really disconnected from her body. And now don't get me wrong. There've been tremendous shifts in five weeks. And all of that, the best part is all of it has been, we turned her energy inward. We focused on her feeling her feelings, clearing past resentments, feeling things like shame and grief and sadness and anger. And within three to four weeks, she started to see massive shifts in her relationship. Is the relationship perfect? Absolutely not. So I do want to paint the picture that you can have shifts and you can see wins immediately when you shift the energy inward. But we also want to paint the larger picture that it's a long game. We're going for endurance. It's not a sprint. And so I love seeing the wide variety of what is possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is. A, it's a marathon and, mm-hmm. and you'll find new hiccups along the way, mm-hmm. but with the skills that people work on now, they can then use those skills to kind of navigate the rapids if they hit another set of them later on without as much disruption. Yeah. The cycles become shorter. I always tell mm-hmm. my clients that it's not about getting rid of triggers. You're going to get triggered till the day that you die, but it's about creating space between it, noticing that there's a trigger, having more tools, more awareness to work through that in your relationship. So then those conflict cycles become shorter and shorter. I love that. And you've talked about shame several times. And I think it's such an important thing to talk about when it comes to sex, because sometimes people come to me and I'm sure I come to you and, you know, they want a better sex life and they want, like you said, the quick fix, but it is the, the shame that's keeping them from having it. And so I'd love to hear any other, I know you said taking a look at it, but is there anything else there around shame that you would recommend for people to either be aware of or to work through when it comes to feeling that emotion? Yeah, I always kind of put guilt, shame, and regret. I kind of call them the bitchy sisters. They're all three are kind of insidious and they can kind of work against us. You know, shame is kind of the most, it's just an ugly word, right? Shame. I feel bad just hearing the word shame. Like I should double. And of course, we think of Game of Thrones, you know, you talked about Daenerys when they literally walked Cersei down the hallway. Shame, shame. And I was like, that was so uncomfortable to watch. Shame is one that I always will say, we're going to have to just write all this out. And I always say, I'm also, in addition to self-care is bullshit, I also think that gratitude journaling is crap too, (laughs) because I hate to journal. I hate to take down time to write some things down. And I'm also like, I'm really afraid that someday my house is going to get robbed and someone's going to take my journal and then like post it somewhere. So I like doing air journaling like Grace and Frankie did in, in that one episode where she just writes it out, writes it out in the air, and then she just kind of brushed it away. And I love that because you're getting it out, you're getting it out of your head, but you're not like putting it somewhere where I feel like, you know, a child or someone's going to get it to look at it. So I always say, let's get that out. It's hard to find the shame though. It's sometimes so deeply embedded in what we do that you almost have to start now and start to slowly kind of go backwards about kind of, and it's not always sex. It's always, it can be just a relationship, but you know, and I say, start with the most recent relationship, then go back to the next relationship. Sometimes they'll all start popping up like a bunch of bubbles. Oh, and I remember this one and this one, and this one. But that's the only way I can kind of climb backwards historically, at least in my head, to get to those really young moments and and then start to just kind of verbally or however you want to release them, just get them released. Because shame is kind of, it's a manufactured human emotion, uh, kind of like, you know, regret. I mean, animals don't feel shame. (laughs) I mean, maybe my dog does when I yell at him, if he like pees on the floor, I don't think he feels shame. I just think he feels like, oh, I'm not going to get food. But, you know, we create these emotions as a way of kind of keeping us in control, right? And it was also a safety measure. If you had a baby and you threw her in the fire, the shame from the whole village kind of taught you, don't do that again. And regrets, another one. I think a lot of women have a lot of sexual regrets and those kind of fester also. And those can, I mean, I know personally that I can think of regrets that I've had a lot quicker than shames. And so I always say, let's clear some regrets out too. Like, you know, you regret that maybe, you know, you let this person put their hand up your skirt at a party, or I regret that I, you know, slept with this person on the first date, whatever it is. I mean, those are kind of easy to get out. 
is also a good time then to create some boundaries on what your regrets won't be in the future. So we use the shames and the regrets and the guilts to kind of create your new playlist, which is, this is what I will and won't do for myself. So I would say the vaccine to all these things is your boundaries. And it's Mm. a good time to start to kind of use those and now make them into a boundary for yourself. I love me some boundaries. Yeah. And, you know, for me, what's always been an easy discernment is with guilt, it feels really internal. Like it's coming from me versus shame feels as if it's coming from someone else. So whether that's a parent, society, like the village, right? Somebody else is placing that belief on me. And so when it comes to shame, I've started to unpack those things by asking, well, whose is this? Because it's not mine. I didn't come into this world believing that sex is wrong and to be sexual is bad. That was given to me by somewhere along the line. And I'm going to give that one back. You can keep that one. Thank you. (laughs) And religion is really big in giving us shame too. And that's a hard one to get into with some people because they feel very strongly about their religion, which is great. But, you know, I say not only does the kind of immediate nucleus of the family kind of create this kind of shame cycle, but most people's religions have very strict kind of guidelines on sexual behavior and what sex is. And so that can create a whole nother level of shame. That doesn't mean you don't love your religion or your church, but just means that maybe that's not serving you in the best way. And that's always a tricky one to get into. Oh yeah. Packed nice and deep. I'm very grateful that that was one that I did not come into this world with. So, but I see women daily that have a lot of religious shame to unpack. So yeah, it's an important part of the combo. I'd love to start to bring us home. And this was such a full, beautiful, well-rounded conversation. And so I'd love to ask you, what would be the last thing that you'd love to leave our listeners with today? Oh my gosh. I did talk a whole lot. I felt like about sex. You know, I I think the message I want is that it's kind of like Glenda, the good witch of the North, you know, when she tells Dorothy at the end, you had the power all along. You just had to believe in yourself. And to me, that's probably like the motto for every woman. We have the power to do all these amazing things and to be healthy and sexually healthy and emotionally healthy and be brilliant. But we just have to know that it's there. We don't have to go buy it somewhere. We don't have to get a a boob job to find it. It's there. We just have to tap into it. And you have the power all along. Mm, Beautiful. I love ending on those words. Thank you so much for adding so much value to our listeners today. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.